Welcome to The Signal Podcast, the podcast that raises your frequency. I'm Maury, purpose guide and founder of a transformation consultancy called 822 Group. I left my career as an executive at a global PR firm to live my purpose, helping leaders and businesses realign with their own purpose by reconnecting with their intuition. Through this work, I've really become a student of people's stories. You know, the things we tell ourselves that hold us back. And by accepting my own intuitive gifts, I've helped countless people recognize the power of their intuition and reconnect to their higher self. Hey guys, we have a very special episode for you this week. We are switching up our format because we have a very special guest. I am so excited to welcome to the podcast the brilliant author, poet, performer, and trans activist, Alok. On top of being a dear, dear friend of mine and someone I coach, Alok is a huge source of inspiration to me for their prolific artistic achievements and the significant influence they've had on the transgender movement. In this special episode, we discuss a wide range of topics as they relate to intuition, including how intuition plays a role in marginalized communities and the fight for equal rights. We address head on the notion that intuition is only a work of privilege, and we get to hear about Alok's personal journey to aligning with their signal and realizing they have more power than they thought possible, even in a system of oppression. So thank you so much for joining us again on The Signal Podcast, and I sincerely hope you enjoy this talk with one of my dearest friends and constant source of inspiration, Alok. Hi, Alok. Thank you so much for joining me on Signal today. I'm so, so excited to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Alok, beyond being such a dear friend of mine, is a brilliant performer, artist, poet, author, just prolific in every way. And I'm really excited to have this conversation about intuition and higher purpose with you because I really feel like the way you state things just breaks right into the heart. And that is the whole point of this show is to get people to wake up and and follow their own power. So I'm excited to get started. One of the things we talk about a lot, you and I talk often about this concept of, you know, my belief is that if you can get rid of the white noise of your own triggers and trauma and fear and really connect to your signal or your intuition, that it helps you step into your power. And one of the things that you've really helped me learn is how your own shame based on your identity, your community, your culture plays into that and how important it is to be really aware of communities that are marginalized, um, of people that feel so ostracized or feel different. And I really just wanted to start by diving in and asking you your take on understanding this lens of connecting to intuition. How do you think it plays for people that have felt marginalized all their life? Is it the same? Is it different? What's the nuance? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing is everyone has felt marginalized their entire lives. That's how trauma works, is regardless or not, if there's a material structure of inequality or oppression, people continually feel slighted. And I think what differentiates that kind of discomfort from legitimate oppression is 
the pervasiveness of it, meaning I get reinforced into a limiting belief system every time I go outside and people tell me that I don't belong or that I'm too much or not enough. And so I think this work with intuition with you has been so difficult and challenging for me because it's hard for me to differentiate a fear voice that comes from wanting to protect myself from transphobia, racism, et cetera, and that kind of clairvoyant, honest voice. And a lot of ways, what working with you has made me confront is maybe I don't even know my own voice outside of their fear. Wow. What does that mean? That means I think that oppression seeks, seeps into us at such a cellular and granular level that even when no one is in the room, we still only know how to see ourselves through the lens or the gaze of people who would rather we not exist. That means that even when it's the quiet intimacy of me and myself, the, the critic in me is actually is the embodiment of colonialism, racism, homophobia, transphobia. And I think that that work has been so confronting because I, I think I spent years pointing my finger saying, this is where the enemy lies. But in doing this intuition work, I've had to actually use, to use this term that a scholar named Ashish Nandi once said, I have to think about the intimate enemy or the enemy within that actually who I thought I was at a fundamental level was actually a trauma response, not my healed self. Mm. Which, to your point, everyone experiences at some level. I mean, thank you for clarifying that. You know, so much of this fear is systemic lies. We're told about what good looks like and what beautiful looks like and what success looks like. How have you taken this journey, and I watch you do it, and we just recorded an episode about in relationship with other people as you evolve, what do you do with those around you? How has this impacted the way you look at your relationships, your community, your friends, as you become more conscious of your own internal power and your own internal enemy? It's profoundly alienating. You know, I think I think one of the things that really frustrates me is that when people speak about healing, they act as if it's just going to be like daisies and like self-care baths and that it's going to feel good. Yeah. But actually we have an antagonistic relationship to healing because the only way that we know ourselves is through our lack of healing and through our oppression. So freedom, freedom and healing for me, both exist in tandem as things that everyone's speaking about, but no one actually is ready for. Because what it means to actually say I'm ready to be free and I'm ready to heal means I'm ready to lose. I'm ready to lose a lot of my sense of self. I'm ready to lose relationships that weren't serving me anymore. And that kind of continual grief of being in relation with people you've known for 10, 15 years, and then being like, oh my gosh, you're just not as invested in this work as I am. And you're seeing, you're seeing me as a ghost, not as a, you're seeing me as a hologram. You're not seeing me as a dynamic person located in the present. And so what I've actually had to really, I think, encounter 
is that there's a direct correlation between how much more intimate I'm becoming with myself, not my trauma self, and how much I feel like I'm losing. Hmm. And yes, it's worth it. Spoiler alert. Because like I said, that harsh critic, that abuser that never leaves, that's that's the war I'm waging against right now to be able to like lie my head on the pillow and not hear that. And that that's worth it to not hear that. Mm. Right. That's that, worth it. What does that harsh critic want from you, though? You, I think that it wants me to be safe. Right. It's it's saying, OK, if you just hide, if you just settle, if you just quiet that discontent or that ambivalence, then life will be easier. It's it's misdirected love, right? It's it's something that I think we all learn, but I think especially those of us who experience systems of inequality and oppression, which is I've got your back because no one else does. So it can feel really destabilizing to to say that that voice is cruel because that voice is saying, I've, I've had your back when no one else did. When no one else can protect you, I protected you. And, and so it's actually doing that ceremonial work of saying, thank you, but no thank you. I love you, but I need distance. And recognizing that those, those things can be simultaneous, love and distance. And I think that they get framed in our culture as antagonistic, but actually... It's saying, I need space from you precisely because I love you. Which is how I see you handling, I don't even want to call them critics, the trolls, right? I see you pushing out this radical love towards them. Can you tell the listeners who I know follow you and watch this happen, how do you do that? How real is that? And how do you access it? It's very real. It it feels more real than anything to me. Because when I look at my own life, I'm like, oh my gosh, I believed such horrible things about myself and the world and other people. Mm. And now I don't. And how did I, how did I make that evolution? It wasn't through shame. It wasn't through being made to feel like I was wrong. It was actually through care. Like care is how I, because people cared in me, I learned, I uh, cared for me. I learned how to care for myself. You know, my friends would be like, you're beautiful. And I I didn't agree. But then they persisted in that. And I was like, oh, wow, if I value this other person, then maybe I should value myself too. And then I realized that the self other is an illusion. And so, so often in social justice, I see this re-entrenchment of me and you and I actually want to have a more spiritually evolved conversation that says these kinds of prejudices that exist in the world, we need to take collective responsibility for that. It's not just individual people, individual racists, individual transphobic people. It's a system and a culture that encourages transphobia. But then I think the next piece, which is where I see your work doing an intervention, is it's actually holding those people back from healing too. Mm-hmm. So in that paradigm, even if they are the ones who are oppressing me, they're doing that because I'm free and they're the ones that are oppressed. Right. Because they are clinging on to hate as a shield 
to not actually have to do the meaningful self-inquiry, right? Mm. How do you feel we can get people to do that meaningful self-inquiry when they're so wedded to hate as an identity? I think that the only response is empathy, right? I mean, I think that part of what you do that's so beautiful to watch is that in their pain, you see it as your pain. You understand it through the lens of your own pain, right? And I think that by people just want to be witnessed. That's why they throw temper tantrums. I mean, sometimes they're ugly and they're dangerous, but it's still about see me, see me. And I'm not saying that that means that you allow abuse to happen to you, right? The only way you can master this dance is with boundaries, You have to have really clear boundaries about what you are going to let into your space, into your energy field, what you're going to take on for other people. But if you have that boundary and then you're able to, which is what I think you do beautifully, see their pain and respond from a, this is coming from pain. I just want you to know that that's what this is. And I can see that and I can hold how hard that is. I think that the hatred that gets hurled is a distraction. Mm. It's a don't look at me. Do not look at this pile of fear and sadness and anxiety and worthlessness. I am going to totally deflect that by hurling hatred at you. And I think that one of the most radical things you can do is literally ignore it. It's like a kid having a temper tantrum and go around it and see the humanity there and see the pain there and connect to that. And that is not for everybody quite yet. I think we can get there, but I don't think you can get there until you do this work on yourself so you can create these boundaries, which is where I think you're shining. Yeah, I think it, it used to hurt me a lot more when people were cool to me. But then I, I really started to ask myself, okay, let's trace where these insults land. People will say I'm an animal. Yeah, we all are. That's just honest. People will say that I'm a sissy. Okay, femininity is powerful. People will say that I'm a faggot. Oh, wow. Okay, faggot was sticks that were tied together where they used to burn queer people on in pre-modern Europe because of their mystical power. Mm-hmm. Okay, they and you trace it. And actually the things that they're insulting in you, those are some of my most pr- profound strengths and virtues and things that I treasure most about yes. myself. So it's an insult. Yeah. So you begin to ask, like, what frame, what point of view, what framework are they using to demean me? It's not a framework that I would ever use to evaluate myself or the world or reality. Yeah. And then it just becomes seen as, like you're saying, a little temper tantrum where they're committed to a world that's dying. Yeah. And I'm not interested in a world that's dying. I'm interested in life and everything that I do. And so it no longer hits like it used to. Yeah. Because I'm just like, oh, okay, that's sad. But I think what's interesting, you know, working with you, what I've noticed is I've had this kind of inverse process where it's so much easier for me to cultivate compassion for other people, to see people's identity, other people's identity as a byproduct of their pain. But to do that work for myself is much harder. Yes. Why is that? Why is it so much harder? I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. It's so easy for me to love other people. And that's confusing because I think for for most people, that's the hardest. I can trust other people to hell and high water, but I can't trust myself. Yeah. And I think it's because in response to being dehumanized, I 
dehumanize myself in a way that was socially rewardable. Meaning I say, okay, you think that I'm trash and I don't deserve to exist, but I do deserve to exist because I'm extremely productive, but I do deserve to exist because I'm incredibly brilliant, but I do deserve to exist because I can change the world. And so what I did is I held myself to a paradigm of excellence, which is a more sinister in some ways forms of dehumanization because it's socially rewarded. So yes. people will call that ambition. They'll call that drive. They'll call it talent, charisma, et cetera. But what it really boils down to is I don't feel like I'm enough. And so the only way that I can have compassion for myself has been linked to my productivism. Yeah. And so I think what I'm having to really ask myself is, do I know how to just be, not do? And do I accept myself for being and not doing? And I'm not there yet. And I think that, that that's an illustration of what happens when we live in a world that puts the social responsibility on marginalized people to somehow innovate or blueprint our way out of structural oppression, right? That's why I need to have mercy and compassion for myself. Of course, I hold myself to this incredible standard because I got no social support elsewhere. Had I gotten social support elsewhere, I don't think I would have this impossible standard for myself. And I think that that balance, I mean, a theme that keeps on coming up from this conversation right now is simultaneous, simultaneity and balance. Being able to, to say the grid, the, the map, the cartography that we have been placed into was made by oppressors. Yes. And I can still do something about it. Yes. I didn't used to believe that until working with you. I used to believe, okay, they drew the borders. They made the rules. I'm fucked. Right. And now I'm like, they made the borders, they made the rules. And so what? Like, it's a totally different shift. Yes. And so many people rely on you for that. So what? So that they can also have the so what? I mean, I think what we talk about a lot, which is really unique with you, is that you're like this beaming, you know, lighthouse at the top of a hill. And that is hard sometimes, right? Because you're human. But so many people who feel like you, look like you, think like you, need you to have that so what be present. What is, is that create pressure? What is that like in your evolution journey in this awareness that you have a responsibility to others? Yeah, it's exhausting because first of all, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to help other people when I can't even help myself? You know, it's this, it's the perennial kind of tired metaphor of being on an airplane and having the air mass fall down. I've become so good at pretending like I've done this work on myself that I'm immediately available to help other people. Yes. But the truest and most honest assessment of myself is I need to focus on me, you know? And I don't think we allow people to do that anymore. We expect that if you're visible, then you should have done all this work already. And I want to push back against that model because that model is the kind of pedestal dehumanizing model of celebrity that was actually ironically 
drawn and drafted by the same people making the rules and the maps that we're protesting. Isn't mm. it funny that in our resistance to that dying world, we pick and choose which frameworks we want to use. And we still use that old framework of celebrity that says, hey, you be perfect. Don't even give a whiff that you're inconsistent or insecure or struggling with self-doubt. Yeah. But I think that what I try to do with my poetry and in my work is to say, no matter how many followers I get on social media, no matter the accolades I get in my career, trust, better believe, I'm sitting here feeling woefully inadequate, full of pain and anguish and sadness and trepidation and sorrow. And I still deserve to be here, right? And that's where that new model for me comes in. It's not the white feminist toxic positivity of I always have to be brave, triumphant, empowered. It's I'm sad. I'm hurt. I'm scared. I'm questioning. I'm hollow sometimes. And I still am worthy. Yes. That perfection that is pushed out is such a disservice to everybody else. It's so sad to watch. We talk about, you and I talk about toxic positivity a lot. And it gets under my skin because I think all that it's really meant to do is make everyone else feel like they're losing somehow. And I think that the brilliance of your presence, let alone your work, is that you're reminding people that you're not perfect. And I think that it's important for people who are listening to understand that's a daily journey for you because you just talked about how you use excellence as your sense of value because there was so much shame in who you were growing up that, you know, it's a daily, you're actively working on that, right? Is understanding that being perfect is actually not your purpose. Right. It's like, it's so intense that I could like sit here and talk to you about how perfection as a system is killing me and killing us and how I believe in imperfect perfection and then leave this call and berate myself because I didn't articulate myself perfectly because I didn't communicate this concept perfectly because I wasted an hour today that could have been spent elsewhere. Right. And I think that's the danger that I uniquely face in this, in regard to healing is what about the return after the gig? What about after a show? What about after the podcast interview? What about when I don't have an audience? What about when it's just me looking at myself? Am I living that life that I believe in? And I, I really realized, no, a few years ago, I realized, no, like, what's the point of fighting for freedom when I feel miserable? And I think that's, that's something that's new as part of my, my awareness is that I was only defining freedom as the absence of oppression and discrimination and violence. And what a low bar that is. Right. Like, okay, so maybe I'm not getting harassed outside, but I still hate myself. Oh, so maybe there's no laws targeting people like me, but I still want to die. That's not freedom to me. And now freedom to me is like, I want every single moment that I'm on earth to be lucid. And notice there how I don't say happy, or I don't say beautiful or comfortable. But what I mean by lucid is to be able to feel it, God damn it, like feel if I'm hurting, feel if I'm triumphant, feel if I'm celebrating. Because I think a lot of people have normalized 
that dissociation has to be something you do in order to get through. And, and, and the way that that affects us, I think, in social justice in particular is there's so many people who are deeply unhappy while we're trying to create a better world. And I want happiness to be part of that world. And I realized happiness doesn't come from toxic positivity. It comes from being able to feel it. Yeah. And how can you grow? Right. How can you grow if it's this constant state of comfort you're searching? Right. It's the it's the discomfort where the growth happens. What do you say to people who are listening and feel paralyzed by that fear of feeling? Because we do. And I mean, look at all the ways that we can now detach and all the ways, right? Like we wake up and we put this phone in our hand and that's it from there. If someone's hearing us right now and thinking, oh God, that's me, but I'm scared to feel, what would you tell them? I think that someone is everyone once again. Mm. You know, I think that what we really don't want to accept because it's so sad to accept, but we have to, is that all of this, and by this, I mean the narratives that we've been told about what success, what family, what happy, what gender, what health looks like are a sham. Hmm. And that even if we access those conventional things, it's hollow because we become a hologram. And I'll say it hologram because we're doing it because that's what we're supposed to do, not because that's what our organic desire was, right? Yeah. And so to really accept that is devastating because that's where we were taught security and safety came from, right? Like, okay, I might be gender nonconforming, but if I get all the degrees, if I, like my brain literally at a fundamental childhood level has bought into a lie and I have to experience sadness of that. And rather than experiencing the sadness of that, people would rather dissociate so they don't have to experience that sadness. Yeah. So the way that the system operates is not just through violence, but through systematic desensitization so that we don't even have the capacity to feel the violence. Mm. And I think that piece is missing in a lot of people's conversation about the status quo. How have we become so normalized to mass death that hundreds of thousands of people are dying from a pandemic and it's just the background noise or static. There's no real public reckoning with what that means, the institutional failures, how misinformation is an organized process that actually social media companies profit from the same misinformation that they on the other side are saying, you know? And so to really sit with that, we have to actually understand that feeling is some of the most dangerous things we could ever do. Because if we were to feel, then we would have to grieve. Mm. But what I want to say to that someone, which is everyone, is that on the other side of grief, on the other side of fear, is the very thing that you were promised and were not delivered. So the system promises us stability comes from convention. We get the convention we're still hollow. But what's grieve that? And then the other side of grief, what you'll find is stability comes from a much deeper place. It comes from self-acceptance. Yeah. And I also, when you talk about grieving, I also think part of this work is grieving the reality that you're not who you thought you were or they told you to be. And, and 
what does that mean for you then? What does that mean in your family system? What does that mean in your relationships? What does that mean in your community? And allowing yourself to feel whatever difficulty that brings up. Because if you're not willing to go there, then you're going to have an attachment to this hologram and you'll never really be able to let it go because you haven't grieved it to find this version of yourself on the other end of it. Hey, Signal listeners. If you're listening to Signal and you're curious about how you can get in touch with your intuition to thrive and live your purpose, we have an amazing membership community called Society M. As a member of Society M, you will receive weekly video messages directly from me paired with custom-made exercises that are all designed to help you incorporate the lessons you're learning into your everyday life so that you can get back in touch with your signal and thrive by being connected to your higher self. You can check it out at morifontanez.com and please make sure to share it with anyone in your life that you think could benefit from making that connection too. Again, it's Society M and you can find it at morifontanez.com. Thank you for listening. How does getting in touch with your higher self aid in this one and two, you know, I'm talking on the show a lot about getting rid of the white noise, which is your fear and your trauma, not getting rid of, but working with it so that the, it can go kind of into the background and you can hear the signal of your intuition. What is that process like for you? I'm so curious for you to describe in your own words, what this relationship with higher self has looked like for you. Yeah. I think it's important to name that no system of power is totalizing. There's always a crack. There's always a sliver. There's always debris. There's some opening. Mm -hmm. And that's what intuition has been for me, is that even when I was doing so well in school and being given all the accolades, some part of me was like, hmm, there's always that thing that we suppress in a race. And that's our higher self. Mm-hmm. And I truly believe that it's impossible for the system to obliterate that. And that's what gives me hope and, and propels me and keeps fighting. Not that I think that we'll win or that I know that we'll win. I, I don't want to make such grandiose claims, but rather that these things that seek to eliminate and annihilate us can't. Mm. That's what gives me hope is that they say that they want to end us, but they're not sophisticated enough to because we are still here. And by we, I mean our truest self that's in everyone. And I know that because when we hear truth, something in us stirs, no matter how many lies, it pierces through. And that's what my job as an artist is to do, is to pierce through the hologram and to speak truth. All I can do is be honest about my pain and the pain of the world. And when people hear honesty, if it's in Adele's latest track, Easy On Me, or in a poem that I write, or in a painting they see elsewhere, they begin to realize, wait, maybe it's not that the art is the simulation. Maybe it's that my life is the simulation and the art is the true thing right? And so they wake up to that. 
So I think that when people hear higher self, they struggle with that because they're just sort of like, I don't know her. But what I want to actually offer to people is notice the moments of riotous dissent in you, even if those are subtle and small moments that you'll dismiss as insignificant, where you're questioning, hey, should my mom really be saying that to me? Or is this really what happiness is? And instead of numbing yourself to that, sit with it, sit with it and say, what is this trying to teach me? And the more that you dialogue with your doubt, yeah. what you begin to recognize is, oh, 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 there's some part of me still left. Yes, absolutely. You know, I get this question sometimes and I always come to you with it and I want to talk to you about it here. I've been asked before if this work of intuition and purpose is work of privilege. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think I would have been one of those people saying that very <laughs> accusation to you before working with you. Because the only models I had seen of people having conversations like this were, let's be honest, wealthy white women. Yep. And so it, it didn't land with me because I was like, okay, what does it mean for me to do healing work when all of the work I'm doing on myself could disintegrate tomorrow if someone bashed me? That's just the reality of my life is that violence is omnipresent. I don't have the luxury to disengage or relax or take a vacation from constant threats to my safety and my dignity. But what working with you has helped, re helped me realize is even in that sentence where I say, where everything I was working on could disintegrate, is that true? No. Yeah, about 80% of it could, but there's still going to be that 20%. And the more that I work on myself, the the faster and the quicker I'll be able to rematerialize myself, right? Yeah. So what I would say to those people who see it as privilege is actually no, because this is the very thing that actually allows us and gives us the capacity to keep going. How else could I justify living in a world that for the foreseeable future, at least for my life, will hunt me? Right. There's no other way. If I, if I just accepted that, if I just said, this is the way that the world is, I'd want to die. And I think that's what we're doing. We are romanticizing nihilism. We're basically accepting a low-grade suicidality as the only way to live. And that when people actually insist, no, I want a dignified life. I want a joyous life. I want a life that's worth living. Then people will be like, that's privilege. So you're saying a life worth living is privilege. Let's get out of that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think people who ask that see it almost as a luxury, right? They, I, I think what they think I'm saying is quit your job and go start your own business and follow your dreams and leave it all behind. And in fact, what you talked about, which is that revolution inside of you, is what I'm asking you to pay attention to. Because the systems of oppression that create things like poverty and marginalization are betting on you not listening to that voice. Right. And so the only answer to thriving to coming out of that place is to have a relationship with higher self because it wants you to thrive. The system wants you to ignore it. And the system's going to convince you that it's crazy, right? Particularly in females. I mean, this has been thousands of years of, you know, calling us witches if there is this mystic sense of, of being connected to something else. But that's because power is accumulated when you don't listen to self. Mm. And that is... Yeah. 
part of my, I think, purpose is around those systems and helping people understand the only way you'll break out is to tap in and listen. You know, as I'm hearing you speak, I'm thinking about one of my favorite poets, Audre Lorde, writes that poetry is not a luxury. Hmm. And so often, and, and she, she, she also had such similar and diligent work around self-care as an act of political warfare, specifically for Black women in, in her context. And so many of the artists that I love are people who are actually saying the very things that you are most quick to dismiss as excessive or luxurious or ridiculous. Those things are the actual substance of survival, right? And so whose lens are you using to make that condemnation? Right. Of course, the system will tell you that intuitive higher self-learning work is just a bourgeois enterprise, right? No, that work isn't. The industry around it is. Let's differentiate that. Yes. The work that you're asking us to do is actually work that's existed in indigenous religions and communities for thousands of years. It's actually the work of meditation. It's the work, it's pre-mindfulness. It's, it's, it's actually about a return to what truly matters. And that's been a question across human life. I think that the injury that's being named when people dismiss this as privileged is the injury of the co-optation of these revolutionary philosophies and the redeployment of them to actually maintain a status quo. Yes. So what I see what you're doing and what I hope to do in the world is we are organizing for the for the abolition of the need for even a purpose coach. Your own irrelevance is the goal. Is the goal. Yes. Yes, because if we are teaching people to tune into their higher self, they should never need us. And the best way to do that is to walk the path yourself and to be in connection with it. I want to ask you something. I want to bring it back to this radical compassion because I'm really interested in this, particularly in the social justice and activist community. You said, as we talked about that, that part of the dynamic there is a me and an other, right? A pointing a finger at an other that is disposable or that needs to transform. How do you see this sense of the work you're doing with higher self is allowing this radical compassion to come through, which means that you then are looking at the systems that have all of these people that really just hate themselves inside the, of them, trying to get us to also hate ourselves too. What do you say to the activist community about any kind of reframe that might need to happen so that there can be even more progress made? Yeah, are we just... Are we trying to just get rid of quote unquote bad people? Or are we trying to change the world? We have to ambition to something deeper and bigger and more penetrating. Because here's the secret. Another one will just pop up. And that's not a way of saying we can't hold individuals accountable. We can. But we have to dream bigger. And to dream bigger actually requires trauma-informed analysis. And I think this is this is the reframe that I really want to give is healing work is the political work. Hmm. Like what so often people think as a theory of change is that if we just enumerate the grievance, take a ledger of the violence, 
prove, authenticate, legitimize, educate, historicize. And the, the, the reframe I'm going to give is that that's not working. It's, it's truly not working because it assumes that people can even receive that information. They can't receive it. Why can't they receive it? Because they hate themselves. So why do they hate themselves? We have to trace it. We have to trace it. It's about worthiness. It's about love. So why aren't we as fluent in love as we are in the law? Yeah. And what I began to realize as an artist, as I was like, oh, this is, this is the real work of cultural political transformation that I sought. When I was just working within the parameters of the law, the law defines individuals, says victim, says perpetrator. What art and culture actually allow us to do is to have a much more complex conversation. What do we do if oppression is the air we breathe? What if it's the way, what if oppression is not just that, that person over there, but it is my deepest and most personal thought? How is changing the law going to reach there? It's mm. not. And I think that the LGBTQ community in particular can speak to this is just when gay marriage was legalized, sure, that was important, but did that really end society's disdain and disgust of us? No, it didn't. And so what we do is we take a superficial, once again, a hologram, we take a superficial concession and we say, this is equality, but why is equality still not enough? So the reframe I want to give actually is that by speaking and working through trauma and compassion, we are going to grasp a more totalizing, all-encompassing and embracing expression of freedom. So this actually is within our best interest because my best interest is how can I normalize being, not even being gender non-conforming, not even being hairy, not even being racialized, like, of course, but being because that's what it means to be is to be different why can't people stomach difference because they've been made to feel that if they're different then they're not worthy of love so i could give an analysis of the racialized construction of body hair or i could look at someone and say what part of you made you feel like you weren't worthy of love and we'll get to the same destination except one will actually go even deeper right and i think the spiritual intervention that I would inject here is about more than identity, but about your soul, right? And that if we as a soul have really just been broken apart into this perception of disconnection, into this perception of distance, then we're really operating in an illusion. And actually, I think the spirituality for me comes from connection to higher self, to each other. Every time I look at someone and I feel that you feel it. It's like a pulse. There's a reminder, almost your soul is remembering, oh, wait a minute, you're part of me in some way. And we have been operating in this delusion that we're separate. And I worry sometimes, even though I think there are so many causes that are so right and need to fight the way they are, that sometimes when we ratchet up that fight, we create an even bigger sense of, of separation. And I wonder if that radical compassion is the way to start to just bring us together again. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder if even having to put radical in front of compassion is necessary right? because isn't compassion already doing that work? Yeah. I also want to offer that for me, my turn to compassion 
people often will say, wow, how did you learn to become the better person? And it gets framed as like me being benevolent and kind to other people. But I actually, I hate to admit it, but it's actually helped me the most. Right. Because when I harbor ill will and toxicity, it eats away at me. And now I'm able to relieve myself of that suffering. Mm. So compassion for other people also ultimately is compassion for me. Once again, the self-other distinction is irrelevant. Yeah. And so it is actually aligned. If, if detractors are saying, well, what about preserving the dignity and the sanctity of insert marginalized group? The way to do that, I think, is through a kind of compassion. Mm. It's just once again... When people hear these words, compassion, love, healing, higher self, spirit, they feel trauma because they've seen those words weaponized in the service. And that's why we have to acknowledge, yes, they have been weaponized. Right. Ask any of my friends. I never used to believe in love. I would say love is assimilation. Mm. They will give us love. They won't give us justice. Love is insufficient. It's a cop out. And now I'm out here talking about love all the time. What gave? It's because I realized they don't get to own love. Yes. They don't get to own love. When they say love, they're not actually flexing or stretching love and all the directions it can and should go. So the same, when we say spirit, we don't just mean it at like a yoga studio (laughs) where you have to pay $500 to get there to feel it. We say you can experience spirit sitting outside drinking lemonade. Yeah. We're saying spirit is everywhere. We're saying you can't hide, you can't abandon these concepts because they've been misused. In fact, learn their origins and recognize how they are actually part of our toolkit, our toolkit in creating a better world. Yeah. Can I ask you doing all of this work and being in alignment with this inner wisdom, this intuitive self what would you go back and tell 10-year-old you? You know, I, I think the more appropriate question would be, what would 10-year-old world uh, would tell me? Because I actually think that when I was 10, I was so much more aligned in these concepts before wow. I had the language, right? And I think yeah. it's the language that, that interrupts us. And I feel conflicted because as a poet, my job is to distill the human condition into words. But then as a spiritual person, I know that words will always fail me. And so I think pre-consciousness, pre-language, pre-discourse, I was much more honest hmm. because I had, I had far fewer ways to lie. So I cried, which was what I needed to do. And now instead of crying, I can intellectualize myself out of a tear, right? Hmm. And so in fact, I think that what we all have to do is to heed the quiet genius of emotion to heed the quiet genius of stillness and silence and spirit and things that are pre-language and pre-grammar. And that is terrifying for me because I learned as a young person to fill the room with my words and my images and my aesthetics to overcompensate for a fundamental lack of trust and stillness. But now in doing this work, I'm actually like, hey, maybe the answers are there. It's just, I didn't take the time to notice them. And maybe I need to actually sit here and confront my life internally. You know, I think that the most incredible and vast work that we do is invisible. Absolutely. So beautifully said. 
I feel so lucky that I get to be in this dance and dialogue with you in my life. And I'm so glad that our listeners got to get just a glimpse of that. You often credit me for guiding you, but you have guided me in turn and really reintroduced me to my power. And you're just such a meaningful soul for me. So thank you for that. But thank you for sharing some of that with our listeners. Thank you, Maury. It's always a delight. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in to The Signal Podcast. You know, when I started this podcast, my hope was to help you walk away with a belief in your intuition and a clear understanding about how to tune into it. And I'm just so excited that you listened to today's episode. And I just want to make one small ask, a tiny favor. Would you please consider sharing this episode with someone in your life who you think could benefit from relearning to trust themselves? I think that they would appreciate it. And I certainly appreciate you. You can find more from me on Instagram at Maury Fontanez and by visiting MauryFontanez.com. This podcast is hosted by me, Maury Fontanez, and produced by Terra Firma Audio. I'd like to thank the talented team at Terra Firma, Casey and Jack, for being such amazing partners. Uh, our wonderful sound engineer, Jordan Newell, Lauren Hall, my amazing literary agent who's believed in my ability to talk about intuition, I think before I did, and my really amazing husband who is so supportive and trusts my guidance so that I trust my own guidance more and more. Our amazing four kids for putting up with all of the intuition talk that happens in our home and my family back at home. Thank you all. I couldn't have done this without you. Thank you.